Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come and open your word. Guide and lead us as we look at this wonderful calling of, of Isaiah and, and, the, and what you have asked him to do, which isn't so wonderful as we look at that in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 6, uh, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim, each one with six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. The post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs upon the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. We're going to stop there. <laughs> this is a picture. And remember, Isaiah has already been a prophet up till this point in time. We don't know how far before this period of time. Because if you remember in Isaiah 1.1, it said he was a prophet during Uzziah, Jotham, and Hezekiah. And those are three good kings of Israel that he is the prophet during their time of. And he starts out with this statement in the year that King Uzziah died. All right? And this could be his literal death, or it could be, and I believe this is his literal death, but there are those who will teach that it was when Uzziah became a leper for his, for his disobedience to God. And we're going to look at that statement so you guys can all get caught up on this. We talked about it a couple weeks ago in... in uh, just an overview in the uh, reading when we announced the reading because that was the reading of the day. But in Second Chronicles chapter 26, and also in Kings 15, but it doesn't give you much of the story there. 26. 26. And we're going to start at verse 1 just to read, read a little bit of how good he was and we'll stop after a few and go to where he fell. Then all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in the room of his father Amaziah. And he built Eloth and restored it to Judah. And after the king slept with his father, 16 years old was Uzziah when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jacoliah of Jerusalem. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah did. And he sought God in all the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God, and, and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. Okay, so we're just going to stop there. That was the, the testimony of Uzziah. They're going to talk about his going to war with, with uh, the Philistines, the fact that he made all kinds of wonderful uh, weapons of war. Uh, so Uzziah was quite a, quite a leader, and he's going to reign for 52 years. How much of that time he was with Isaiah, we don't know. Then we're going to jump all the way down to uh, verse 16 of the same chapter. But when his heart was strong, uh, when he was strong, his heart was filled 
up to his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord his God and went into the temple of the Lord to burn incense upon the altar of incense. And Azariah the priest went in after him, and with him 40, uh, 80 prisoners, uh, 80 prisoners, yeah, 80 priests uh, for, of the Lord that were valiant men, and they withstood you, you, Uzziah the king, and said unto him, It pleaneth not unto you, Uzziah, to burn incense unto the Lord, but to the priests, the sons of Aaron, that are consecrated to burn incense, to go out of the sanctuary, for you have trans trespassed, neither shall it be for your honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry and had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and while he was angry with the priest, leprosy arose upon his forehead before the priest in the, in the house of the Lord, and beside the incense altar. And Uzziah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked upon him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead, and they thrust him out from thence. Yea, he himself hasted also to go out, because the Lord had smitten him. And Uzziah the king was a leper to the day of his death, and he dwelt in the house, uh, in a a several house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And Jotham his son was over the king's house, judging the people in the land. So we see here a good king who does not end well. All right? He gets proud and he gets... Basically, he gets, well, I'm, I'm a good king. I've done all these things for God. I can go into the temple and I can offer sacrifices and incense. And remember, the incense altar is in the holy place. So he has come into the sanctuary and he's going into the place where only the priests are supposed to go. Now, if he had gone one more room into the holy of holies, he'd have been struck dead because only the high priest once a year could enter into the Holy of Holies. So he went to a place he's not allowed to be, and he had good intentions. And this is something we have to be careful of as Christians oftentimes. Sometimes we will do things with good intentions that God says, don't do. And people go, well, I can do this. God's letting me. Uzziah thought the same thing. I've been a good king. I've, I've honored God all this time. I can go in and burn incense. And he was struck with leprosy. And he said he was a leper for the rest of his days, and his son ruled after that point. And some people say that because he was basically declared dead when he got leprosy because he had to be separated, that that could be this incident. I don't think so. I do not think that the the story in Isaiah is that event, but I'm giving it to you because some people say that. So if you hear it, it's, it's, it's a possibility. Okay? Uzziah went in thinking that he could serve God in his own way. And we have got to be careful that we don't try to serve God in our own understanding, in our own way, and serve him the way he asks to be served in. Now we think back, and there's another incident back when Aaron's son, Adab and Abihu, did things their own way, trying to burn incense. And what happened to them was they were burned to a crisp. God burnt them with fire. So in, in actuality, Uzziah got away pretty easily. <laughs> you know, yes, he was basically consider, considered dead. He was separated from everybody. He couldn't, couldn't be around people, but at least he still had his life. He wasn't, he wasn't burnt to a crisp like Adab and Abihu. So God was very merciful to, to Uzziah, but it was when he got angry with the priest and would not repent that, that he was struck with this. So we do give this kind of history on it, and I just kind of go back when we do these things to show 
This is what good what happened. And, and Uzziah was a good king. And this happens in, in Paul, he said, I desire to finish well. You know, I've run the race, I have, I have completed the task, I am guilty of no man's blood. He said, I have done all that God has asked me to do. And my hope and prayer is that I finish well. I do not want to be like so many people that I have come across and known over the years that do not finish well. That many of the scriptural people didn't finish well. They followed God and then at the end of their life did something totally bizarre. Whether they just went crazy or what reason, I don't know. Uh, just get proud, you know, God, I've served you for so long, I feel I should be able to do something more. You know, and this is something we need to be very careful of. What has God called us to do? And be able to abide in that. Now, the good news is sometimes as you do what God asks you to do, he adds things to your life and gives you more and more to do. And we see that in some of the biographies we read of these different people. They start out, God, this is the one thing I want that you want me to do. And then next thing you know, they're huge ministries that they're running because God has found them faithful. But if God hasn't decided to give you that, don't try to seek it out. But if he asks you to do it, do it. But, you know, here Uzziah went definitely beyond because he's trying to do what the priests were supposed to do. And God says, no, you're the king. <laughs> be a good king. Do what the king's supposed to do. Don't try to be a priest. And this is something very important. But here we see Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah dies, he has a great vision of God. And I begin, you know, sometimes I wonder, was his faith in Uzziah more than it was in God. He was, he was a priest. He was, he was serving God. But you know, he had a good king. And I think when King Uzziah died, there was probably this idea in his mind of, what now? What now? My hope has been in the king. The king, is, the king has been running a good kingdom. You know, sometimes for us as Americans, we put our hope in our government sometimes, not, not so much in recent years. But in the past, there's been some hope in the government. It was righteous and, and doing things right. And people go, oh, you know, oh, this person now is no longer there. What, what now? And this is something we can be careful. It happens in churches frequently. When a pastor who's been in a church for a long time retires or dies, what now? What's going to happen to the church now? Well, was, were your, was your hope in that, that leader or was your hope in God? who that leader would say, if it was a good leader, your hope is in God. I'm replaceable. And this is the thing we've always got to remember. There is no person in the work of God that is irreplaceable. And this is something we've got to understand. And you know, the good news is in my lifetime, as I've seen people that I think are really hard to replace, they might have been hard to replace. But you know what? God would almost always take, you took one person who did a bunch of jobs and you replaced them with two or three people and then everything grows because two or three people now are doing their job and more. And then when one of them leaves, he puts another two or three people in and much more gets accomplished. You know, and I've seen places where it hasn't happened, but God is faithful. He'll provide the people. If the, if the people are being honest servants of God and desire to follow him, God's going to replace them. So I try not to worry about it when somebody, you know, because I've learned. I've learned, oh, okay, God, I don't know who you're going to put in this place, but he'll bring new people in. He'll bring people with skills that you didn't even know had skills. And all of a sudden, God says, here, here's your replacement. Or here's your replacements. 
okay? Jesus wandered around himself, and what did he do? He replaced himself with 11, 11 disciples. And each one of those were replaced by two or three people as they trained others to take their places. And God is always faithful. And I think this is where Isaiah is at this, pro, at this point, and he gets this vision of God. The king's dead. Now what? Okay, now what? He's, he's the one that's purified. He, he cleaned out the, the temple. He cleaned out the, the idols. Now what? Will his son really be a good leader? What's going to happen now that he has passed away? And God shows up. And he says, okay, what's, what's your problem? What's your problem, Isaiah? <laughs> so there, there's a, one commentary that called this chapter the vision of the kings, not just you know, he had the king who died and the, and the king, okay? And this is really what he's seeing. There's a power behind, your, the, behind the king that you've been trusting in. Put your trust in me, not the king. And so he says, he sees the Lord and he says, Uzziah died and I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. That's that long cape uh, that drags behind. Usually we think of it in a, in a bride with a long flowing train. And it says his train filled the temple. His glory, his honor, his, his passion filled the temple. And above that picture of God, and this, and this word for Lord was, was Adonai, which is probably Jesus. He actually sees Jesus sitting in there because it's not the word Yahweh, which is the, the eternal father picture of God. And it says, and above it stood the seraphim, each one with six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. Seraphim are a type of angel. Okay? There's two specific types of angels that we are told about by name, the seraphim and the cherubim. Okay? Seraphim seem to be the guards and the warriors. It's a seraphim that guarded the, the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were kicked out. Uh, the seraphims appear to be the ones that battle, and the cherubim seem to be servants. Now, I say seem to be because there's not a whole lot about either one of them in the Bible. Now, there are classes of angels beyond that, and Paul talks about them in several of the, the epistles. We have thrones, dominions, powers, rulers, archangels. Okay, archangels, we know of three. Three archangels in God's, uh, through the Bible. Uh, we know of Gabriel. Michael and Lucifer. And Lucifer is the fallen archangel who becomes Satan, the accuser of the brethren. Then we have the rulers that seem to be over areas. And when Daniel was praying and, and Michael finally came to him, and uh, Gabriel finally came to him and said, I had to call for Michael because the prince of Persia withstood me. Satan has angels over large areas and he Satan has a hierarchy of angels you know very much like the military does uh, and any other group I mean government any government agency has a hierarchy and so he's got angels that are very strong angels that are over territories and then he's got angels apparently over country areas powers and then you know dwindling down to to the to the foot soldier angels and demons on both sides of the case and remember, the good news for us as Christians, and for those of us who believe in the Bible, is Lucifer only took one-third of the angels. There's two good angels for every one bad angel or demon. So 
just give you this little thing because when we do these little things we see seraphim i want to make sure we know who they are and a little bit about angels and stuff so we know what's out there there's an angelic war going on right now around us a spiritual battle that goes on and god lets us know that there is a battle we are part of that battle as human beings god created men probably to be an example to the angels of his redemptive character because he knew that they would get us to sin and then he gets to redeem us and have us make choices to repent. And we're, we are in court, you know, and this part of what our trials are when we go through hardships and God says, go get them, Satan, you know, uh, God says, just like you did Job, go, okay, Job, you know, go get Job, you can do this, go get, go get this person, okay? And God says, some of these people are gonna be good witnesses on the witness stand. Some of them are gonna fail. <laughs> and he already knows that. And, but here, Isaiah sees God and he sees the seraphim above him. Now, it doesn't tell us how many seraphim were above him, but it does give us a description. This is one of the few places where we're given a description of the seraphim. They have six wings, okay? They have some form of foot, <laughs> okay? Because it says two wings cover the feet. Two, they cover their eyes. Why? Because they can't even look upon the holiness of God. And with two, they're flying around above him, crying out, holy, holy, holy. Okay. And we've said it many times, and this has been hammered into my, heads over the, my head over the years. When you see something said three times, it means something special. In this case, God is holy. He's separate. He's so separate that they're saying it three times. But, and just to emphasize how holy is God. He's set apart from everything else. And he says, the whole earth is full of his glory. Now, one of the great things I love is to be able to look around and just see God's handiwork in everything. You know, I was actually talking to somebody today and we were, you know, he, he is an atheist. He doesn't believe in God. He believes in evolution. And I asked him, how in the world could he believe in evolution? And his question was the usual, how in the world can you believe in God? And I go, because it's more logical than, than evolution. You know, and we had a little bit of talk about that. But everywhere I look, I see God's handiwork. The sun, you know, the sun is, is a very young star. You know, we know that it's young. It doesn't have enough helium in it to be an old star. We look around and say, look at all the design and how perfectly everything is put together. And people want to just believe that it just comes, come, came about by accident. Because uh, it makes no sense to say that somehow all this perfect organization design just accidentally formed. You have a problem of how did everything begin from nothing and design happen. You still don't get rid of that problem. I go, neither, neither evolution or creationism is, is scientific. They're both philosophy. And he started going, oh, no, no. And I go, no, there is no scientific proof for, for it. You know, and this is what we need to be able to understand. God created everything. His glory is everywhere when we look at it. And just the idea of design proves to us that there is a creator and designer. It doesn't necessarily prove our God, but it proves that there is a designer. It didn't just happen by accident. You know, the, the very data in DNA does not happen by accident. You cannot have information without somebody 
being the one that gives you information. And here it says, God's glory fills the earth. You know, it fills the earth just as his glory was filling the temple that he saw. You know, and I can't imagine what this was like, but this is basically going to be Isaiah's new call. Okay? He's been called to be a, past, a, a, a prophet, pastor, teacher, whatever you want to call his title. And he's been doing it. He's been doing it, seems to be faithfully. But here, God gives him a new call, a new vision, a new understanding. And God will do that in our life at times. He'll get us into a place where he gives us a new understanding of our call, a deeper understanding of our call, and challenge us to go deeper than we ever thought we could. And, we're, and sometimes we'll go, God, I, 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 was, I was in over my head already. I was up to my neck already. You want me to go over my head now? And God says, sure, let's go for it. And I don't want you to do it with a boat. I'm going, to be your, I'm going to be your keeper. And here we see, and he sees this. And in verse 4 it says, And the post of the doors moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. And this mood means literally shake. Okay? The voice was so loud, the, the, the pillars and walls shook. Now, I don't know if Isaiah was looking by a vision into the temple that man had made, or if he was looking into the temple of God. And I personally believe he was looking into the temple of God in heaven, okay, where God actually sits. And that kind of is even scarier. That, voice, that sound is so loud that those pillars are shaking. What a, what a powerful sound this was making. Uh, you know, and it says, smoke filled the temple. You know, and smoke has been part of God's presence all through the Old Testament. When he came down on Mount Sinai, the, the cloud and the smoke covered the mountains, and lightning and thunders came out of, the, out of the mountains. Why? Because God is saying, you don't get to see me. You can't see me and live as a human being. And I think he saw that glimpse of Jesus on, and then the smoke filled the temple so that he could not see the full glory of God. And this is a powerful picture. This is quite a picture that he's seeing. He's seeing God, and he's going to be challenged. We see Moses at the, at the burning bush talking with God, and his life changes. We see Jacob at the wrestling with the angel, and his life changes. We see Abraham you know, being called to go by God, but his life really changed when he was asked to offer Isaac and says, I'm willing to do whatever you want, God. You know, we see this over and over. The disciples' lives changed on the Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended on them and they saw the presence and felt the presence of God. There's a change when we actually come and experience the presence of God. It starts when we get saved. And when you get saved, if you remember back that, you get that presence, you get that joy, you get that lightness. Your, your troubles are taken up. But you know, throughout your life, you can also go through these times when God says, Maybe not as dramatic as this where you actually see it, but he comes and he goes, I've got a new direction for you to go. I've got a new plan for you to go. And you're, you take that step, and your, your growth has been little bit, little bit, little bit, and all of a sudden you take this great big jump, and he says, I've got this new plan for you. I've got this new thing for you to do. And it's always scary. It's very scary to take that, st that big step. And here's... Isaiah, verse 5, and he says, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king. 
And we've talked about this so many times. People see, see something from God, they see a vision, and their very first thought is, I'm going to die. Okay? And this is basically what Isaiah is saying. It's very, very fanciful here, but he's been going, I've seen God, I'm going to die. Okay? And this almost makes sense here because he hasn't been given a call yet. Okay? It's not like when Samson's uh, father said, oh, we've seen an angel, we're going to die. And, the mother had to, his, and his wife had to go, uh, they told us we're going to have a son. What, what's wrong with you? Okay? Uh, but here, Isaiah is literally believing that I've seen God. Yeah. I, I guess I'm going to heaven now. My, my life is over. But at the very least, he understands how sinful he is. One of the things that we will find, the, the closer God draws us to him, the more we will see our sin. Because when, when absolute holy and righteousness comes in contact with us, our sin just looks so bad. And I've talked about this often. God keeps drawing us closer and closer to him. And the more we get near him, the more we see how sinful we are. Especially when you think you've got it all together and God says, okay, let me draw you in just a little bit closer to me. Ah, now you see all that sin, get rid of it. We're going to get rid of it. And then we get rid of that and if we're not careful, we can get kind of proud and God says, okay, let's drag you a little closer and let you see there's still a bunch of stuff there. I'm absolutely convinced that I could live to be a thousand years old and not ever get rid of all the sin in my life because the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Now God sanctifies us and he makes us and he declares us perfect and he makes us better and better. But we're always going to fight sin. And here's where, here's where Isaiah is. Woe is me. Woe is me. God, why, why did you bring me into this vision? I can see you. What's going on? And verse 6 is that wonderful thing. And then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal. And that's a burning hot ember. And he put it, and he took it from the altar with tongs. And he laid it upon my mouth. And he says, lo, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. He was cleaned. Not perfectly. This is actually a picture of justification. I am declaring you perfect. I have touched you with this fire. Because we know Isaiah is going to have problems. We've got, a, we've got another 60, 60 chapters where Isaiah is not going to be perfect on. <laughs> but God says, you are cleaned. And just remember this event. You have stood before God, and God has made you clean. And that's my first justific justification. God declares us perfect. And then we'll spend our rest of our life learning to be what he says we are. And then he said... And I heard a voice saying unto me, uh, saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for me? Then said I, Here am I, send me. Now Isaiah had no idea what God was calling him to do, had no idea what God wanted done, but he heard the call. And oftentimes this is the way with us. God never tells us, what we are going to do, or rarely tells us what we're, what we're going to do. He just says, who's going who's who's to step forward? Who is going to step forward and do it? And what he's wanting us to do is, here my God, <laughs> send me. Now we're going to find out that Isaiah probably didn't want the job that he was given. And I wouldn't want Isaiah's job. And I hope that God hasn't given me Isaiah's job. So we're going to look at these last verses here. Verse 9. And then he said, go and tell this people, hear you indeed, but understand not, and see you indeed, but perceive not. 
Make the heart of this people fat and their ears heavy and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. Then said I, O Lord, how long? (laughs) And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, the houses without men, the land be utterly desolate, and the Lord move men far away from their great forsaking in the midst of the land. But yet it shall be in 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 a tent, and it shall return, and shall be eaten as a tall tree and as an oak whose, whose stump is in them, as they cast their leaves and the holy seed of substance thereof. All right, I'm not sure if you really fully understood this. All right. So he says, here I am, and God says, go. Go to the people. Go to Israel. Again, remember, they have had two good kings in a row, but the people's hearts have not been totally repentant. They're still high places. They're still doing idolatry worship, even though the king is making it difficult to be idol worshipers. Jotham's going to be a good king. Hezekiah is going to be a good king. But even though they have good kings, the people's hearts are never turned completely to God. Now, more people than not are going to be righteous because it's, the environment is good. It's going to be very much like the United States. The United States, when it was founded in the 1700s, was a righteous country. And it was a generally good place to be. And people did good things, but not everybody was a Christian. Not everybody who obeyed and was righteous was even a Christian. This is where we are at the time Isaiah is prophesying. Kings are good. They're, They're setting the right template, the right place, but the people's hearts are not following God. And it says... Hear, you know, go and tell them, hear indeed, but understand not, and see indeed, but perceive not. So you're going to hear the words, you're going to, you're going to see the words, and you're not going to understand, you're not going to respond. Greg Glory said in a message one time, the best place to get a hard heart toward God is in church. Because if you hear God's word often enough, but do not live it out, or do not go forward in it, your heart will become hard toward that word. And there's many people sitting in churches that have have hard hearts. They go to church all the time. May or may not be saved. I'm not going to judge that. But every time they hear God's word, they don't act on it. They get a harder heart. And probably not saved, but I'm not the one that can judge that. That's between them and God. But it's real easy. If you just keep hearing what you're supposed to do and what you're supposed to do and you don't do it, you'll get a hard heart. And this is what Isaiah is told. You're going to tell these people and they're not going to respond. What a sad call that is to me. Isaiah, you're going to speak to these people and they are not going to listen. They're not going to understand. Now, does that mean every single person never understood? Probably not. But the majority of the people he was called to talk to never responded. Jeremiah has given the same message. Huh? Oh, it's exactly the way it is. The message goes out. The message goes out. The message goes out. And America is really bad. You have every opportunity in America to hear the gospel message, and yet so few respond to it. You hear it on the TV. You hear it on the radio. You've got a church on every corner. You can hear it from Christians who are actually doing their job evangelizing, and yet people get hard heart toward God. And they bring, and this is what Isaiah is told. The people are going to have a hard heart. They're not See, going to respond. That means 
And we as Christians can have a hard heart toward God if we're not careful. And, but, you know, when we get into his word and we get following him, it builds us up and edifies us. And then in verse 10 it says, make the heart of this people fat. And that is their, in the seat of their emotions. Okay, that when it says heart, it's a seat of emotions. And it says fat. And this word for fat literally means obese and insensitive. Okay, you're going to keep telling them the word and they're going to be insensitive to the word. They're going to be obese sluggards and not listening. Uh, and make their ears heavy, dull, unresponsive. And shut their eyes, and this literally means to smear their eyes over with salve. Okay, cover it with petroleum jelly so they can't see anything. <laughs> yeah. And you know, this is at a time when the people seem to be following God, and God's saying, their heart's not following me, I'm going to make life difficult for them. And this is where our country is in, in today. Some people's hearts are, you know, they're, they're wanting to follow God, but they are just so insensitive. They're not willing to do the changes to make God. And now we're kind of beyond this point. We're at the point where Jeremiah is going to be preaching where they're just on their way out the door. And our country is on its way out the door unless we get a repentant heart amongst the people. I don't expect it. I, would, I hope that we would. I hope we could have a revival. I don't expect it. They're following the world too much. But that still means God can change. Yeah. We've had two great awakenings in this country where people were following the world and we turned to Christ. So it is possible to have a third. We had the Jesus movement, which came close, but it, the Jesus movement didn't have quite the impact of the other two. It didn't totally change. Where it hit, it hit good. And people were changing. There's still an opportunity for this to happen, and I pray that it will. But my expectation is, in, is more along the lines of Isaiah and Jeremiah that they're not going to hear. They're not going to respond. I like to be wrong. I hope to be wrong. I'd like my grandson to grow up in a, in a country that is reasonably responsive to God's righteousness. My expectation is that he won't, which means it's his father and my job and, and the grandma and, and mom to teach him to follow God in spite of the rest of the world. And it means our job is cut out for us to re raise up a generation that's going to follow God in spite of all. What I hear nowadays on the TV, on the news, and the commercials, everything's okay. No matter transgender, homosexuals, it's all okay. So don't worry about it. Don't worry about what you hear somewhere else. This is all okay. But that's been true in the past. That was true in Rome during the Christian startup. It was true in Greece before it fell. It was true in Babylon. It was true in, in Egypt. It was true uh, in Noah's day when God judged the world. It was true in Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, this is not unusual and it's not new. Okay, those who don't know history think it's new and think it's all brand new. But it is what has been going on forever. Said, nothing new under nothing the sun. New under the sun. They fell. Yeah. And that's the problem. That's the thing, yeah. Okay. They could have a revival in the book of Judges. The, these things would happen. People did what was right in their own eyes. God would put them under dominion. He didn't take them out from being a nation. And then they repent and they'd come back. It's possible that we won't totally fall. God will put a judgment on us. If we don't repent, we will fall. If we repent, we can become a nation, you know, be a strong nation again. 
but again, it's nothing new under the sun. Historically, we're at the end of our we're at the end of our country. If we do not have God step in with repentance in people's hearts, we are at the end of our country historically. Now, we do have the examples of repentance and, and restoration, but we're, we are on that cycle. We are in the phase of judgment. And most of what's going on in this country is judgment right now. We are facing judgments right now. The, the droughts, the, the famines, the severe weather that we're having, we are at the beginning stages of judgment in this country. It is going to get worse if we don't repent. And I don't really hold up much hope that we're going to repent. I'd, I'd love it to be true. I'd love it to be true, but I don't have much hope in it. Because historically, most nations do not. And that would mean that this nation will be, cease to be a nation as we know it. So. Yeah. Yep. So anyway, he says, they're only going to get worse, and I'm going to do this to keep them from understanding, lest they be converted and healed. So God's saying, they're getting so bad, I'm going to prevent them because of their hard hearts. And this is the hard heart. And I almost feel our country is at this point. God is going to say, I'm going to prevent them from hearing, lest they, be con they repent and get converted. Okay. Now, I'd like to be wrong. Like I say, I want to be wrong. But this is years before the people are going to fall that God's saying, the doom is coming. Their, their doom is coming. We have Uzziah, Jotham, and Hezekiah, and then we have a whole bunch of kings after that that are bad kings that are all going to run 30, 40 years. So this is long before the people are taken into captivity that God has pronounced this judgment on them. I don't know if we're in this part yet in our country. I don't know if God is, and I'm not going to try to be a prophet and present, you know, say it, we have. I'm afraid that we are, but I don't want to say that we are because we've had generation after generation that has just been getting worse, doing what's right in their own eyes, calling good evil and evil good. You know, it can be changed, but it takes a miracle from God and it'll start in the churches, finally getting, them, getting on fire and turning, them, turning back to God. And the sad thing is we've got a large percentage of our churches that are throwing away the word of God. Still calling themselves Christian, but they're not even close to being Christian anymore. They've thrown away the Bible. They've thrown away God's standards. And they're saying the same thing you were talking about. Everything goes. Anything goes. There's no standards. And if we've got a large percentage of the church saying that, oh, man, we've got a problem. But by the same token, between 400 A.D. and 1400 A.D., the Catholic Church ruled and was throwing away God's word during that period of time, and yet God redeemed people. It took a thousand years, but he redeemed the, the church and lifted it up. We are never beyond hope, but we're right on that precipice. And if we are at the end times, I think that we will be judged if we are truly at the end time, and who knows whether we are. I look at Revelation and say, God, it sure looks like we're at the end of the time. It sure looks like we're, everyone's doing what's good in their own eyes as they did in the days of Noah. It sure looks like we're at the end. But God says we're to walk by faith, not by sight. I'm going to pray for a revival. I'm going to hope for a revival. I don't put much hope out there for it. But if God wants it to be a revival, there will be a revival. And we'll see him lifted up. 
and there will be revivals. Don't get me wrong, there won't be no revival. Because as I said in Isaiah's day, there probably wasn't, wasn't that nobody listened to him, but it was a minority that listened to him. Because God always has a remnant of people worshiping him. Even during the thousand years when, when everything looked like it was being torn apart, there was a remnant of believers that were following God and keeping his word and lifting him up. And always a remnant, always. No matter how bad things look like they're getting or even do get, God will have a remnant of people. Even when we get to the rapture and he takes the church out, what does he do? He anoints 144,000 Jewish believers to go spread the gospel. Now, there'll be a remnant, a very small percentage of the whole population of the world, but they're going to preach the gospel. That's after the church is gone. There's always a remnant of, for God's people to worship him. Uh, Elijah, after he ran away from Mount, Mount Carmel, after the battle with the prophets of Baal, uh, where he killed all the prophets after, after God burnt, burnt his offering with fire from the sky, ran away because Jezebel threatened his life. And his griping to God was, God, I'm the only one who hasn't bent my knee. And God says, get back to where I told you to be. The 5,000 haven't, haven't bent their knee. I've got 5,000 who haven't bent their knee. Go back and do what I told you to do. And too often we worry about, God, I'm the only one. God, I'm the only one in this company that's representing you. And God goes, no, just you do what I tell you to do. I've got, I've got others. You may not know who they are, but there's others. It, there will come a time possibly when we can't meet in this church because of the persecution. And then we'll be in people's houses doing Bible studies in homes and just lifting up God the best we can. We will meet wherever. Yeah. It is great to be able to meet in a building and say, this is where you come. Everybody come to church, come to the building that's, that we're going to say is a church, which is only just a building, and the church comes into the building. But, you know, come to this building where we're meeting, and we're going to lift Jesus up in this building. And, but there will come a time when we may have to be in homes or, and even doing that in secret, okay? Uh, heard so many stories of places in Russia or China where you get to have a 30-minute Bible study. It takes two, two to three hours to get there and two to three hours to leave because everybody has to come in such small numbers and then leave in small numbers because you can't draw attention to what was going on. What's going to happen to us in the future? I don't know. God will give us the power, the strength, and the anointing to get, get through it. But here he says, I'm going to block them. And then, I love this verse 11, and then, then said I, Lord, how long? How long am I going to be doing this, God? You know, how long are these people not going to listen? You know, I would almost hate to have his call. Isaiah, you're going to preach, and these people are just going to get stupider and stupider as you preach. You know, you're going to give my word, and they're going to get dumber. You're going to give my word, and they're going to get less spiritual, more evil. And I think my answer to God would be the same thing. Uh, how long, God? <laughs> how long are you going to want me to do that? And he said, until the cities are wasted without inhabitants, the houses without men, and the land be utterly desolate. And the Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. In other words, we're going we're to kick them out. And we know that that's going to happen some 300, you know, two, three hundred years after this point in time that God's going to put them into captivity of Babylon. You know, and yet, 
So this isn't just Isaiah who's going to get this prophecy. Remember, I said that Jeremiah gets the same message. You're going to preach, and they're not going to listen. You're going to preach. You're going to teach. And I don't know if he put it as, as colorful as this, you know, that people are going to get stupider, and let, but they're not going to listen. And that's exactly what I, happened to Jeremiah. And I love the verse where Jeremiah says, God, I'm, I am not going to speak in your name anymore because I keep getting in trouble every time I speak. And then the very next sentence was, God's word burned in my mouth and I could not help but speak. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I have, where God's word just burned and it's like, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to say anything. It's not the right place. And bang, all of a sudden it's like, got to say it. <laughs> you know, got to say this because it just, God wants it said. And that may cause trouble. May get us arrested at some point in time. But here, Isaiah is saying, God, how long? And God says, until I take the people captive. They're going to have dull hearing. Basically, God's saying they're not going to repent as a, as a nation. And again, I know that that doesn't mean that every single person in Israel didn't repent. Because God always has that remnant. Always has somebody that hears. Somebody that responds. And, you know, this is one of the things, again, as we read the biographies of people and they talk about how hard it is to minister and then all of a sudden that one person gets saved. That one person makes a commitment to God that, you know, and I don't know about you, but I just really understand the value of one soul. If just one person gets saved, truly saved, it's worth it all. Anything I go through, anything that we go through as a church is worth it if just one comes to Christ. And I said in the office, I've got a sign that says, what is the value of one soul? Or what is one soul worth? You know, you know, and that really comes down to it. What would I give if just one person would become, would become saved? What trials, what tribulation, what pain would I go through if it meant that one person goes into eternity for Christ? It's a growth place. It's a growth place, but it really is the idea of what is that value of the soul. Am I willing to go into great pain for the rest of my life, however long that is, if one person would come to Christ because of it? And I would think, would they always stay? I would think, well, are they going to turn back after I take my life? Well, if they, them? I mean, you know, no, not take your life. Just give whatever, put up with whatever God wants you to put up with. Well, you think of somebody like Johnny Erickson Tata, who is the founder of Johnny and Friends and, and Ministry. She, at 17 years old, dove into the water, hit her head on a sandbar, and was quadriplegic. Okay? She was a Christian before that, but she became totally devoted to God. And because of her pain and her suffering, it has given her a heart to minister to the disabled. She's responsible for many of the laws for disabled people in America. And she has a ministry that takes old wheelchairs, reconditions them, and sends them around the world to get help to those who cannot get a wheelchair. Okay. Uh, great story. You know, and I've listened to her many times and she'll share, she shares that she would love to be out, you know, get healed. But she also shares that it's because of her problems that she's had that she's got this heart toward people and has used it to minister to people. If she had been healed at 17 years old, it would have been a great story, you know, 
you know, girl, you know, teenager healed of her quadriplegia, and, you know, two years later, three years later, nobody had ever heard of her. Okay, but she'd had this happen, and she's used it to build a ministry. And you know, would she have built that ministry without that injury? Probably not. Like I said, she was a very nominal Christian. She was going with the flow. She, she went to church, but really had no desire for God beyond just going to church. This gave her a true heart as she sought God. Her first prayers were, God, just kill me. Take me home. I don't, want to be, I don't want to be paralyzed the rest of my life. But, you know, she's led an interesting life. God has used her. She's, she's married. She's has, you know, she has this huge ministry that she's been in charge of all because of what everybody would say was a terrible incident. And yes, it was a terrible incident. But all things work together for good. Because of her injury, millions of people have been touched with the gospel of God. And it's a wonderful thing when we see this. And here God's saying, you're not going to have any success, really. And then this last, but yet it shall be in a tenth, and it shall return, or one-tenth, a remnant, a tithe, a tithe of the people, in other words. And it shall return. Okay, they're going to go into captivity, but they shall return and shall be eaten as a tell tree, which is an oak or an elm. We don't know which one. And as an oak whose substance is in them, and that literally substance means stump. Okay, the stump. And a lot of times they take a tree and they will bind the stump, and somehow... Another tree grows, out of, you know, grows from that stump a lot of times. And I don't understand how they do that, but it, it, they do that. And it, God, God's able to make it happen. And it says, as the stump, the stump is going to remain there. There's going to be a tithe of people that will return. And it says, and when they cast forth, and this means literally the, the tree has fallen, the holy seed shall be of the stump, shall grow back. And God says, I'm not abandoning my people. My people are going to go into captivity, but I am going to maintain a remnant. And when they went into captivity in Babylon, a remnant of Jews stayed behind in Israel. Not very many, and most of them did not stay very faithful. <laughs> a handful stayed faithful. But out of that grouping that stayed behind, they intermarried with the Gentiles, and they became a group of people known as the Samaritans. The Jews considered them half-breeds because they weren't true Jews. They had intermixed. They weren't really followers of God. They kind of mixed up the religions of, their, of the families that they mixed into and with, with Judaism. And they became an unaccepted people, but God still kept a remnant of people. When Cyrus declared it's time to go back to Israel, Several thousand people went back that had been following God. Now, the sad thing is that many of the Jews did not go back. They said, we're happy. We've got our businesses. We've, been, we've got our homes. We've been here 70 years. Israel is no longer home. We're going to stay where we're at, which was good and bad because it put God's presence in other places, but it also made them second-class Jews compared to those who were, went back to Israel. And those go back to Israel, and it says, God says, I've kept that stump. I've kept it. It's going to regrow. It's going to be reestablished. Why? Because he established it. Same thing when Israel fell in 70 AD. 
Jerusalem was destroyed. The people scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And just recently, 70 years ago, Israel came back up from nothing. Given a land and people brought back to establish their nation for a third time. Which started the clock running for the final days. The third time Israel has been reestablished. First, when Joshua brings them into land. Second time, when, when uh, Ezra and Nehemiah bring them into the land. And then this third time, when I don't know if there was a leader that brought them into land, but they were brought back into the land and established a nation again that's starting to worship God in the, in the way they do. But God says, this is my people. I am not done with them. And when the rapture of the church comes out, God will really say, I'm not done with them. He's going to raise up 144,000 Jewish evangelists to preach to his own people and saying, I told you I'm not done with you. <laughs> and all of the world will move against Israel and Jesus will return and, and deliver them and set up his kingdom for a thousand years. What a beautiful picture we have. And God starts it right here. They're going to go into captivity, but I will keep the remnant. The stump will be bound and ready to go. The substance will be there. They'll be ready to be reestablished as a nation. And they will come back. And they did. Seventy years from the time they go into captivity, because that's what God said. Seventy years. The next time they go into captivity, they went in for an awful long time. You know, just, just 1,870-some years. <laughs> Just a, just a short time of captivity because of their disobedience. And yet they came back as a nation. And the greatest thing is that there are so many Jews that are, their, their heart's desire is to go to Israel. Just God is putting it in their desire to them to return to their home. And we're watching things happen in our world that are going to make them want to go even more. Anti-Semitism is, is welling its ugly head again and making life difficult for Jews. And the more difficult things are made for them, the more they're going to want to go to Israel and say, here's home. Here, here's where we belong. And more and more of them are going to go there because God says he's going to draw his people to Israel. He said that he's going to bring them to them. He's going to draw them to him. How he's going to do that? Anti-Semitism, the burning in their heart to go to Israel. But eventually, the Jewish people are going to be in Jerusalem or Israel, not just Jerusalem, but Israel. And the whole world is going to go against them after the Antichrist makes them think that he's their, their Messiah and builds their temple and starts worship and then declares, I'm God, and they realize that they've been tricked. And all of that that goes on in the end times. Very strong picture, and we see it all through the scriptures. I mean, it's just amazing how God keeps reiterating his story over and over and over again. And he keeps telling us the same things over and over again, mostly because we're dumb and stupid and can't understand things the first time. And then when we do understand it, we forget it. And God says, okay, you forgot, let me remind you. Or you didn't understand, let me tell you again. Uh, and we all know that we as human beings are pretty, pretty thick-headed. Anybody who's raised a kid knows that human beings are thick-headed. We have to tell our kids about 100 times before they finally understand. But you know, we're no different. God has to tell us, Hundreds of times, it seems like, before we finally get it. And then we get that aha moment. And it's like, OK, God, understand. Finally, I got it. You know, finally, I've got it. I'm not going to let go of it this time. And hopefully, we don't. But you know, God is wanting us to turn to him. 
He's wanting us to have this moment where, God, I see you. I see you and I know what you want. And I'm going to step out in it. Even if it's going to be seemingly fruitless. Yeah. And I say seemingly because we never know what the fruit is. We really don't know what people see when they look at us. We don't know what we're doing that's going to move people. All we know is that we step out. We step out in faith and do things God's way. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come before you. Lord, give us the opportunity to have this moment where we see you. In whatever way it is that we see you and that we will respond to say, God, I want to serve you in whatever way you want. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.